as innovators in this space, the best thing and almost also the most hair losing thing you can do <laughs> is continue to be your own worst enemy, right? Mm -hmm. you, need to be, you need to be asking yourself the hard questions. What have I not done? What have I done wrong? What should I be redoing? What, what have we done incorrectly? And the core thesis of our company from the very beginning is if there's a question, we're gonna do it right. And no matter what, we're gonna push harder, we're going to do more, and we're going to be compliant. Welcome to MedSider Radio, where you can learn from proven med tech and healthcare thought leaders through uncut and unedited interviews. Now, here's your host, Scott Nelson. Hey everyone, it's Scott. In this MedSider interview, I sat down with Dan Clark, who started his career in the private sector at Parker Hannafin, a Fortune 200 organization which he calls the largest company you've never heard of. After experiencing the MedTech innovation cycle many times over, he was eager to innovate himself. So in 2015, Dan teamed up with Dr. Ryan Dennis to start Linear Health Sciences, a MedTech company that created the ORCID, a device designed to mitigate unwanted or accidental IV dislodgement. Here are the key things that we discussed in this conversation. First, don't skimp on research during early stage development. Soliciting feedback from a broad range of stakeholders before commercialization will set you up for a smoother process when it's time to scale. Two, know your skill sets. Find the right partner and divide and conquer. Dan focused on product development, marketing, and regulatory, which freed his co-founder to tackle fundraising full-time. Third, for a smoother regulatory pathway, bring the FDA into the conversation as early as possible to foster better understanding. Be your own worst enemy, asking the difficult questions to ensure you've done all you can to be compliant. Okay, so before we jump into the discussion, I wanted to let you know that we just released the first volume of MedSider Mentors, a print-based book that summarizes the key learnings from my favorite MedSider interviews over the past six months. Look, I fully realize it's tough to listen or read every MedSider interview that comes out, even the best ones, but there are so many valuable lessons you can glean from the founders and CEOs that join our program. So that's why we decided to create MedSider Mentors. It's a way for you to learn from the best thought leaders in our space in one central place. Here's a teaser of what you'll see in this first volume. Gar Hong Kong, founder of HealthQuest Capital, teaches you how to successfully pitch your startup. Patricia Ziliak, CEO of Ivinsons, discusses what you really need to know about clinical trials. Jared Bauer, CEO of Ionic Sciences, shares best practices for avoiding obstacles in your startup journey. That only scratches the surface, so if you're interested in learning more, head over to medsiderradio.com forward slash mentors. If you're a premium MedSider member, you'll get free digital access and a print version sent straight to your door. If you're not a premium member yet, you should definitely consider signing up. In addition to every volume of MedSider Mentors, you'll get full access to the entire library of interviews dating back to 2010. This includes conversations with experts like Erica Rogers, CEO of Silk Road Medical, Dr. David Albert, founder of LiveCore, and so many others. Learn more by visiting medsiderradio.com forward slash mentors. Again, that's medsiderradio.com forward slash mentors. All right, without further ado, let's get to the interview. All right, Dan, welcome to MedSider Radio. Hey, thanks for having me, Scott. Yeah, really looking forward to this discussion. We had a little nice nice little chat, kind of pre, uh, pre-recording, so I think this should be a, a fun, lively, uh, lively discussion for sure. But um, let's start out with um, a little bit more about your background. If you can kind of give us an elevator uh, pitch uh, yeah. in maybe, you know, a few, a few minutes about what you were doing leading up to uh, uh, co-founding uh, Linear uh, Health. Yeah, yeah, I certainly can. Um, so I... Uh, I follow I follow kind of a, a semi-consistent path with a lot of a lot of founders. Um I, I'm technical by degree and in, in by way of engineering. 
but uh, I'm not the type of engineer that anybody wanted actually doing any true math. Um, I'm the guy that was able to look at something, tell you if it worked or not, uh, theorize the concept, amend things, and then hand it off, right? So when I first went into the private sector, I guess, um, I was working for a big Fortune 200 called uh, Parker Hannafin. And I don't know if you've heard of it. I'd explain it as the biggest company nobody's ever heard of. And the reason is because they generally have bits and pieces and everything. They're heavy in automotive and oil and gas, seals, gaskets, tubing, those types of things. And they have a small sub-segment that was medical device. Uh, and it was never something that was actually on my radar. But what happened was uh, I went through the training program with them and they said, hey, we need a sales engineer that can speak technically, but at the same time, also kind of has the vibe and feel for, for med tech. I had been exposed to it at this point and said, you know, this sounds like it could be a great fit. You're going to move me to SoCal. I'm in all board. Like, let's, let's go. Um, and that's, that's where the history started. Um, and I started experiencing what the med tech innovation cycle started to look like. Now we weren't the, the end manufacturer or the end developer. What we did is we, included bits and pieces. We created components or sub-assemblies for the Medtronics, the Covidians, the Carefusions of the world. So it was an interesting perspective because it, it was predominantly out of baseline manufacturing, what's capable. And throughout my tenure at Parker, uh, that that experience kind of expanded, I, whether it was territory management or specific product line management. I actually, uh, towards the end of my tenure there, ended up managing strategic relationships internationally. Actually, for the Medtronic-Covidian relationship was how I ended my, my tenure there, where I was responsible for entering and exiting strategic business, finding more value-based approaches to things, especially when it came to manufacturing for these companies, and help streamline not only their profitability, but ours as well in the, in the same vein. Towards the end of that time frame, I was starting to get antsy. And the reason is because I, at that point, I was still pretty young, pretty brash. And a lot of the senior leadership at the company wasn't, weren't exactly fans of my methodologies because, you know, their approach to things were, hey, this is, we've been successful forever. This is how we've always done it. This is how we're going to continue to do it, which I know to a lot of the other innovators on, on this have said, or, or I'm sure feel is that's nails on a chalkboard, Right. I can't stand the idea of not having a new innovative way to do things or a different perspective. And, and so there was there was some tension in that respect. Um, and so I started looking at other opportunities, knowing that I, at some point I wanted to do something myself, but I didn't know what and I didn't know how because, hey, I'm not a physician. I'm not a clinician, um, but I fell into a market that I love. So I started just kind of keeping tabs on things, stretching my arms out with uh, with friends and family, but really a passive approach to things. And what this kind of stems into is, is kind of how linear came to be is uh, a friend of mine from Purdue said, hey, I'm out in Oklahoma City. I'm working. A friend of mine's a physician or a hospitalist here, and he, he's got an idea for something I think it's right up your alleyway. They were, we were hoping we could at least gut check this for or through you. I said, yeah, let's let's shoot it across. It, it was an interesting, interesting element because at that point I was young and I I was ignorant. Mm -hmm. And uh I thought, you know, what I like to do, my my kind of thesis on life still to this day is I like seeing cool people cool do cool stuff. And if I can help you along the way, I'm going to do so. And so they they ran the idea, the initial concept of what has now become the organ safety release valve by me. 
And um, I said, the theory of this works. Here's your pathway, right? 10,000 square or 10,000 feet up. Let's take a look at what this is going to look like and how we're going to get from A to B. Uh, here are your black holes. Here's what's missing. Wipe my hands of it. Good luck. So I got a call about two. And this, oh, was, this was like 2015, 2016 timeframe. Is that yeah, right? this was okay. 2015. Right? Okay, okay, got it. Um, yeah, we've been after this a while. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, and just for everyone that's listening, if if if, you, if this is if you're kind of late to this game a little bit, we're recording this in uh, kind of the back half of we'll call it the back half of 2022. So you know, about seven years, right? Post you seeing this idea come across your your table, so to speak. And we're we're finally into commercialization. So yeah, yeah nice and efficient time use there, right? <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, I mean, I mean, we're joking around. I'm like, so many medtech projects they kind of they kind of start that way, right? Like I'm involved with one I, that, that I co-founded, and we we started working on it probably around that same time frame, right? But didn't you know sure. due to a number of things, you know, people I was working with at the time, um, they were doing you know other other projects, and and uh, and you know the timing just didn't work out. But we picked it back up. Raise the seed round, and the team that's working on on the project now, Crossfire, is moving amazingly fast. And uh, yeah, so no, I, I get it. I get it. These medtech projects can kind of have you know, kind of have some interesting stories for sure. So no, they they do, and especially when you know once you take it away from part time, this is a really cool project yeah. to to okay, I'm bootstrapping to okay, let well, we actually have to go raise capital. You right. know, the, these are these are major inflection points in terms of growth for the company in and of itself. And these, you know, for us, and it sounds like the same idea, and for many others, it's it takes time to get there. Totally. Right? We didn't totally. we didn't raise our first round of capital for two years. Yep, yep. So, that, and that's that's so. I'm glad we're even talking because it wasn't kind of on the on the list of questions, so to speak, right? right? But like that's such an important point because there's a lot of people that listen to this program that are are like you and me, uh, whether they're engineers, non-engineers, physicians, whatever, but they, they've got some great idea, right? But it's it's always, it never turns into something because it's always like a side, a side project, right? Right. And there's, and, and these, you know, anything in life sciences, especially med tech, you're, I mean, there's only, you can only work on it so much on the side for, for a, you know, a, a time, but they, they all need capital, a fair amount of capital, unless you've got, you know, Couple hundred, maybe a couple million, and like throw at something. You know, you're never. It's never going to see liftoff, right? Until you go raise, you know, raise a, you know, a small round of, of financing. So anyway, sorry to interrupt, but go ahead. No, 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 not at all. You you brought up a, a great point. It's actually one of those things that we had to learn. We thought at the very beginning that we could bootstrap it, and that's you know that's based off of a lack of knowledge of ever having done this before, mm -hmm. right? But we work within a market that is an absolute necessity. Yeah. And the question is, when do you pull that trigger, right? Where are you going to do that um, in your own timeline? And then that that can be tricky to a certain extent because not only do folks understand that you need money in this arena, but they also want to see proof of concept. They want to understand the market. You know, you have to have your I's dotted and your T's crossed to even cross that bridge. And that takes time too. Yep. So really interesting stuff. Yeah, um, no, no doubt. No doubt. So, so, you, so it sounds like you were, you know, you're working on this. For a time period, but eventually, to, to your point, um, needed needed to raise some some money. Needed it mm -hmm. needed to become like a a, a real thing, right? And so, right. talk to us. You you mentioned that that Orchid is the kind of the, the main the main device, right? You're it sounds like you are in commercialization. So give us a high level sense before we I guess we go we go back in time, right, and revisit some of these things that you worked through. Give us sure. a sense for kind of what what it is and like like wh where's the company at right now? I mean, are you mm -hmm. are you like full-on commercialization, limited market release? Like, what does that look like? Yeah, good question. Um, so 
so first and foremost, yes, we're we are full scale commercial. Um, we are we are having a, a structured approach to it, but anybody that is interested can certainly um, go get it. Any physicians or hospitals. Um, to take a step back and kind of explain the product in and of itself, the orchid safety release valve is designed to mitigate unwanted or accidental IV dislodgement. The theory of the device itself is extremely simple. It goes between an IV extension set and an administration set. And on tension, it separates and seals the system on both sides, creating a sterile barrier. Once that happens, your IV pump sends you an occlusion alarm. You know something is wrong. To return back to treatment, you simply have to replace the separated valve halves uh, dispose of them and put a new prepackaged one on and re- return by, right back to treatment. Now, the it's important to understand what the, the status quo is or the current standard of care and why this is important. Is The current standard of care is if an IV gets dislodged, well, then everything, the IV, the tubing, whatever you're infusing, the bag of treatment, all of that is disposed of. So it's pretty waste intensive. Um, now, we evaluate things based off of simple concepts like saline, but imagine you're doing something more critical, whether it's chemo or TPN, the dollar value that is associated with the waste goes exponentially up. You're introducing new needles, more traumatic experience for your patients. You're looking at redundant activities for your clinicians. We're aiming to mitigate all of that by replacing a simple valve set in comparison. So where we're at right now is is we are commercializing. We are on body. Um, It is early stage still. We've only been in market for a couple months, but so far the subjective feedback uh, has been been very overwhelmingly positive. And I think a lot of the reason for that is, is education. The arena of medical tubing dislodgement is not necessarily an arena that is actually tracked. In fact, it's not considered a reportable event. When we don't have a reportable event required, well, you start losing traceability as to how big of an issue something actually is. Hmm. Uh, While we aim to change that in the long term, what we're seeing and what we're educating on is more transparency to what IV dislodgement actually looks like. And when you start looking at it for a peripheral IV, the most basic of IVs, the easiest access, you're looking at reported percentages anywhere between around nine and a half to 24%. Hmm. Now you go up chain uh, when you're looking at like a central line, that number is exponentially lower, but the criticality of IV recite retention there is exponentially higher. Beyond that, going into alternative applications, we start seeing medical tubing dislodgement as a whole as a rather large issue. And it's been fundamentally just accepted as status quo Mm -hmm. when it doesn't have to be. And it quite honestly, it shouldn't be. Got it. So that's that's kind of the background of of where we're at, where we're going. But right now we're excited because it's the early stage uh, commercialization and the education, the most difficult, but also the most exciting component of this. Got it. That, that's really interesting because, and, and just to, just so I understand, it, it basically what you're saying is it happens a lot, right? More than people even expect. Um, yeah. And you mentioned earlier the cost around that. I didn't realize that. Like you take an expensive drug that's being infused through an IV, and that's just like. My if if I'm if I'm if I'm being infused right now, you know, via purple mm-hmm. IV, it gets dislodged. That just goes like that's that's like standard of care just to toss that. Wow, no kidding. That's okay. it. Now, now you could take it one step further, and you, if somebody is receiving chemotherapy and they receive treatment, the standard of care if you lose an IV is they throw away everything. But the problem is chemo is is a very critical application, right? They cannot mess up how much you've had. So what they do, instead of looking at it, estimating how much fell on the floor and hoping they figured out how much you received, they say, we don't know how much you got. Best of luck next time. We'll see you next round. Right. 
which is which is fundamentally impactful for these these highly intensive treatments that folks are receiving. So taking a very basic approach to how we can impact patients, this is why we came up with this device to have a fundamental impact on the more than 90% of folks that get IVs when they're in a hospital, whether it's saline or TPN or chemo. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. Uh, and super, super helpful. So if you're listening, um, and, you know, while you're driving or, you know, doing some lawn work, you know, during the fall or whatever, you want to learn more about the device, head on over to LinearSciences.com. There's a, there's a, there's a lot of helpful information on, uh, on their website, LinearSciences.com is the is the place to to learn a little, learn a little bit more. Um, so Dan, let's let's now that we've got it kind of we've sort of level set on kind of where uh, where where you guys are at. Let's mm-hmm. let's go let's go back in time and talk a little bit more about kind of what what this what this device initially looked like. You know, you you mentioned sure. kind of you were you know this idea came came across your your, your table or your, your 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 desk so to speak. You know, virtually. And it looked like it had legs, right? But I'm sure there was probably a lot of key lessons that you learned developing some of the uh, the early alpha and beta concepts. So talk mm-hmm. to us a little bit more about that and really maybe frame that up within you know, your experiences, even at, at, at Parker Hannafin, because I'm sure you probably saw a lot of mistakes that companies make in these kind of early formative years. So maybe let's start there. Yeah, Um it's a great question. So first and foremost, uh, when when it first came across my desk, it actually wasn't vascular access. The idea oh, was really? born and bred out of my business partner, Dr. Ryan Dennis, where he had a patient who dislodged her chest tube through a myriad of issues. That chest tube was not replaced for about six hours. Now, when that happens, what's essentially what's essentially occurring is you're suffocating. That lung is filling fluid. It's not draining. So his his approach to this was there has to be a better way to address this and get a warning system and manage the tubing application, hmm. not lose our, our site. And when it came across the desk, the, the first thing we looked at was, was exactly this. We said, hey, the idea is, is it's got legs. How do we impact the most lives right off the bat? Well, inherently, with more than 90% of all patients receiving IVs, it would, of course, be vascular access. Uh, and that's how that's how this originally really started gaining steam, looking at the market, understanding the impacts of treatment and where we needed to go. Now, I think one of the most critical aspects that needs to be addressed early on when you're going through alpha beta and doing some of this product iteration is really getting feedback from the from industry. I've heard this said before, and I think these are the folks that you tend to find, uh, you see finding more and more success is the more that you involve them in the process, not just not just key opinion leaders, not just, hey, we're doing a round table, but day in and day out, having them feedback, provide guidance, uh, use cases, applications, physical handling elements, uh, visual aesthetics. I'll give you an example. Our device is purple for a reason. You can see it against a white bedside. And that was... That was directed feedback. It sounds so simple and so so basic, but it has such a fundamental impact on the day-to-day use cases of these nurses. Hmm. So getting them to weigh in, I think, is one of the most important components to it. And more specifically, on our side of things, what we needed to understand is, is our market. What could the market bear when we're looking at the business case? Hmm. Uh, price points, you know, these are disposable devices. We need to understand the, the market that we're playing in, and we also need to make it repeatable. So manufacturability, and this is where the Parker Hannafin side of things kind of came into play, conceptually understanding what was repeatable, what's not, what's scalable, right? So we don't want molds that are making one to two components each yeah. time we need to scale this thing exponentially 
so that was that was a building block that we put into place at the forefront of the company to make sure we could repeat this, scale it effectively, and that we weren't pigeonholing ourselves with uh, too tight of tolerances, too restrictive of geometry, and that we could scale this not only with the individual product, but across a platform of products for our for um, all of medical tubing. Got it. I use, the, it. I use the example of like enteral feeding. That's a great one. All we have to do is swap out the connectors and we actually have the functional capabilities to address it. Hmm. Yeah, those those are really great points, and I think most people that are listening to this, right? They're 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 the, the first kind of point that you made around getting VOC, right? Voice of customer research, whether it's from physicians, nurses, techs, whatever, is 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 crucial for any device, especially if it's pretty innovative or it's different, right? Um, it's not it's not like a a, a me too type of product, like uh, uh like something else, right? But you're you're doing something sure. fundamentally different with 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 Orchid, even though it's relatively straightforward, it is fundamentally different. But those points that you made around like being being you know pivoting to, to profile IV as an example, understanding that look if like the typical path for a medtech startup like the market just simply it simply needs to be big enough right you could be solving mm-hmm. uh, a, you could be solving a really like critical need but I mean unfortunately like that's the world we live in in medtech like the market has to be big enough because you know all mm-hmm. of these projects are going to require like we discussed earlier all all of them are going to typically require you know a fair amount of capital right maybe in some cases very significant capital and if the market's not big enough. You just not there's not going to be a path forward, right? Uh, this is just the kind of the the cold hard reality. But you you also brought up like a really interesting point around looking at the device and understanding like how to, how how does this what does this look like at scale from a manufacturing sure. standpoint? Which I think is like most kind of entrepreneurs that that I interact with, you know, through, via you know the, this 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 podcast and and uh, and and Medsider, they don't they haven't even thought through that at all, right? They're so focused on this interesting idea that they have, right? That solves what appears to be a, a pretty clear need, but haven't even remotely thought about you know, the, the manufacturing and, and, and scalability of that. So super interesting that you, you brought that up because it's crucial. It's crucial, especially for a you know, device like yours, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, and it's certainly appreciated. You know, this is, it's a construct of my history and my yeah. perspective of understanding mm-hmm. materials and manufacturing. Again, not being the one that would be doing the finite the finite element analysis or the, the mathematics behind it, but um, but understanding that this was a core building block of what 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 it needed to be, and I think I think that is a crucial step that yeah. is becoming more transparent to innovators as especially in the med device space uh, as it continues to evolve. Um, right. That's it's something that that needs to take to be taken more into account, and I think I think people are seeing it. Right, right, and maybe that maybe the, the key take home lesson on this particular point is. If you if you're working if you're listening to this and working on you know a pretty pretty interesting idea and maybe the market is big enough, you need to think about like what what does this what does this look like when you hit you know uh, when you hit co- like commercialization right is this is this something that you can you can truly scale up or is it designed so uniquely that like no one's going to want to take it on it's going to be like an, an absolute nightmare right to to build out a, a line or even to transfer a line etc so like those are really really important questions and obviously you need to have something to work with in order to like you know, go there, you know, there needs to be, you know, you know, something, something legitimate that you're working on, but nonetheless, it's super smart to be thinking about that stuff, you know, uh, early on, you know, in the process. Yeah. I think it's safe to say that everybody's initial couple form factors, whether it's alpha <laughs> or beta have nothing to do with that. It's how do we make this thing work? Right. 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 Um, and you cross those bridges and you start to, you start to iterate down with the knowledge that you need to get to that point. Yeah. And at least as long as you can have a pathway, I think that's, that's one of the key, the key takeaways there. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Let's, let's use that and kind of transition to the topic of, of regulatory. Right. And I know, um, you know, we're recording this before you're doing this panel with, uh, with Mark Duvall and, and his firm, 
but we, we were chatting about this in kind of the pre-interview when I, I heard about this, 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 uh, this panel that you were doing and it caught my attention. And so I reached out and then I started doing some background research on, on you on linear. And I was like, wait, like this device seems really straightforward. You know what I mean? It's not like a heart valve, like how, like how complicated of a regulatory path is this, but it sounds like it has been. So um, maybe if you can, you know, just I'll, I'll kind of mm-hmm. pass the baton to you. Right. And let you kind of t- tell us a little bit more about sort of the, what you've been through and and really maybe with a focus on kind of, you know, key lessons learned for anyone else that's, that's listening that, that maybe thinks the reg, the reg path is very straightforward, but you know, they may be in for a bit of a rude awakening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, we've had an interesting path. So first off, I'd like to talk from a macro perspective on our yeah. timeline. We've been around since 2015, 2016. Um, you look at our bootstrapping timeline, that's about two years of it. How much are you really getting done there outside of concepts? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then we had our development period, and then we ended up. I'll put I'll put the term nicely collaborating with the FDA for getting close to three years in terms wow. of the regulatory pathway, where we received multiple NSEs, multiple back and forth conversations. We attempted pre subs that got us nowhere. So if you look at the overall time frame, the product development it actually didn't take that long. It's the regulatory headache that we took on kind of put us in a different atmosphere. And, and theoretically, you're right. I mean, I, I don't know anybody that hasn't said, you know, the, the function of this device is not not outside the box of thinking. I mean, it's like, if you've ever seen somebody drive away from a gas station and the valve closes and the terminal's still up and the hose is with the car, right? When they drive away with that hose in their car, it's the same yeah. thing. The concept exists. Hmm. So I, what we ultimately came down to is, is about getting close to a three-year pathway where we finally succeeded after uh, a formal appeal. Um, but in the mix of all that, the conversation that we had was relatively convoluted. And I think what we ultimately distilled it down to was that uh, the risk profile that the review group associated with this type of, uh, of device was not indicative of users or the market as a whole. So what we were doing is we were building for clinicians, building for nurses, using the regulatory compliance structure that's in place, validating it, attempting to go through third party where they agreed that we should have been substantially equivalent. But then the feedback that we were receiving was inconsistent with that. And it got to the point where I was on a I was on a rather high level call with with the agency and my my stress bubbled up to the top. And my exact words were, this type of regulatory environment is what is killing innovation in this space. If you're not willing to nudge a little bit in a 510k or de novo pathway where the how these things are built, how they're implied, then we're not going to see innovation in our industry. You're going to see the status quo and it's going to be a bunch of me too products. Uh, and that 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 raises a lot of heartburn for me as a whole. But mm-hmm. in more specifics to to the orchid safety release valve, what we had to do is we had to go back and run run enhanced testing. It really got put through the ringer on things that no normal device I don't think actually would have been. Uh, extended micro microbial ingress testing that I mean the the world thought leaders who I had on the phone because at that point I needed to couldn't think of themselves. They mm-hmm. said this is insane, right? Uh, so there are some explicit examples related to that microbial ingress product function. Their expectation was that we removed people from treatment instead of saving treatment, hmm. which again, from an industry perspective, is the fundamental opposite. The status quo removes people from treatment. We're trying to save it, right? Right. So it's it's these types of things, these narratives, and I think some of the t- key takeaways are are early 
early conversations with the agency. I say all these things with the understanding that I need to I need to put out there that they're trying to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. They're trying to bring out safe products, things that don't negatively impact or adversely impact folks. I understand that. So early conversations and education are key. The earlier that you can bring them in, they can better understand things, the better chance you have of streamlining your regulatory pathway more explicit outcomes or reports or data that's necessary from them. Uh, We didn't have that luxury. We couldn't go sit in a room because when we started all this, we all hit the COVID lockdown. So Mm. the opportunity to go sit in a room where you can flesh things out rather simply was lost. And you're restricted to a Zoom call where you had 45 minutes. And the second that 45 minutes was up, the screen would go black. Mm. So what can you really get done? And uh, that was that was some of the, the impact. Hey there, it's Scott, and thanks for listening in so far. The rest of this conversation is only available via our private podcast for MedSider Premium members. If you're not a premium member yet, you should definitely consider signing up. You'll get full access to the entire library of interviews dating back to 2010. This includes conversations with experts like Renee Ryan, CEO of Cala Health, Nadim Yared, CEO of CVRX, and so many others. As a premium member, you'll get to join live interviews with these incredible medical device and health technology entrepreneurs. In addition, you'll get a copy of every volume of MedSider Mentors at no additional cost. To learn more, head over to MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium. Again, that's MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium.